Welcome to Webinaki Windows. I'm your host, Donald Loring. Webinaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Webinaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, uh, and in partnership with WMPG in Portland, Maine. Today is the ninth show in our series on unpacking sovereignty. We'll be talking with Professor Harold Prince and Professor Darren Ranko. Professor Prince is emeritus at Kansas State University and native of the Netherlands. He is a distinguished and well-known Wabanaki historian. Professor Darren Ranko is a member of the Penobscot Nation and associate professor of anthropology and chair of Native American studies at the University of Maine. Last time in series eight, we discussed the rise of the timber industry state appointed agents and state control over the tribes through these agents and the tribal monies the state garnered through these agents by leasing tribal lands, boom fees, stumpage fees and more, leaving the tribes without access to their own money and in a state of pauperism. To date, we have discussed the effect of two of the three branches of state government uh, on the tribes, the legislative and the executive. Today in our series, uh, our ninth series, we'll discuss the third branch of government, the judiciary. Uh, and let's start with 1842 Maine and the two court cases that are what I consider the pillars of Indian law in Maine. The first court case uh, is Murch v. Toma, 1842, and the second will be State v. Newell, 1892. So to give us uh, an overview of what was happening uh, in Maine uh, in general in 1842, uh, let's begin with Professor Prince. Harold? Uh, thank you for inviting me, uh, Donna, and uh, hello, Darren. Uh, it's good to be back uh, in our trio of uh, conversations uh, about uh, Wabanaki uh, history, um, in particular in Maine. Um, the Wabanaki homeland, as um, you of course know, but your audience may not, uh, stretches all the way to Newfoundland um, and to um, uh, Vermont. So it's a huge uh, area. And Maine, if you look at that geography, is pretty much in the center of the Wabanaki homeland, um, with the Western Wabanaki, uh, generally speaking, having uh, largely become um, uh, obsolete as a political entity uh, in the late uh, 18th century, but the, uh, the uh, nations um, east of the Penobscot, including the Penobscot nation itself and the Passamaquoddy and Maliseet and Mi'kmaq, um, they have persisted. And one reason they have persisted was that uh, the territories that they traditionally inhabit uh, were less fit for agriculture for the early settlers uh, than the territories uh, west of the Penobscot, in particular from the Kennebec down to uh, Florida, so to speak. So many of those nations uh, down the coast uh, have either become extinct or driven out or reduced to extremely small minorities. And the holdout uh, in many ways were um, uh, the Penobscot, um, Passamaquoddy, Maliseet and Mi'kmaq as far as um, down east is concerned. But that said, their numbers had become extremely small. So uh, we're speaking about um, uh, in the hundreds rather than in the thousands when you talk about 
the Penobscot and the Pescogote each, um, the numbers vary. They're not entirely reliable and depends on who's counting exactly. But the Penobscot were about uh, 400 uh, people or so. Um, and many of them were actually uh, almost on a perpetual migration, uh, making baskets, uh, hunting, fishing, but away from the Penobscot River, which had become uh, in many ways a, um, a clogged highway that was extremely difficult um, to live at Indian Island with the screeching of the sawmills at, uh, at Old Town, just across the river. Um, the noise and the, uh, must have been horrendous for everybody who was used to hearing the waterfalls, but to hear these big, big double saw sawmills at work, the huge uh, logs that were um, uh, uh, driving down from the west and the east branch um, of the Penobscot, the Matawamkag, Pesdumkag, and all the other rivers, um, they all ended up there either at Old Town or further. So you asked about 1842. Um, by that time, of course, we have the railroad. Um, one of the very first railroads in the United States was uh, laid out between Old Town and Bangor, bypassing the waterfalls. And that meant that the, uh, that the boards and the timber and the slats and the, uh, all the other uh, forest products, um, as they were already processed in the sawmills in Old Town, uh, powered by, um, by the fast um, water of the Penobscot and smaller tributaries that run into the Penobscot, um, th that was put on trains and put into Bangor where the lumber schooners were waiting to ship off um, that um, lumber, not only to the markets in New England, in particular Boston, where there was a shortage of wood, but also to the West Indies, um, to the Caribbean. So much of that wood uh, was sold uh, to the Caribbean. Um, and also quite a lot of uh, wood was actually sold in uh, Europe, in particular in England. England was largely deforested. Ireland had almost no forest left at all. So there was a huge demand uh, in England for forest, forest products uh, that they either would get out of the Baltic Sea, uh, let's say to Finland, Sweden, um, Lithuania and Rus Russia, those areas, uh, but if that was somehow blocked or monopolized or otherwise um, expensive, it was uh, cheaper once that the, the lumber had been uh, loaded on board of the um, schooners and uh, larger ships. It was cheaper once it was at sea to sail another few days more than you might have otherwise sailed out of the Baltic. And it was all before pretty motor powering or diesel powering, there's wind power still. So what I'm saying in essence is that um, the, um, the infrastructure for the extraction of timber by the um, 1830s, 1840s, 1850s become, became enormous and the financial interest uh, on the part of the timber industry and the impact on the state of Maine um, um, headquartered in Bangor was humongous. So when you look at the legislators and the lawyers and the governors and you look at the power of Bangor and the surrounding areas, um, um, it's not surprising that when you get a guy like William Williamson, who writes the two-volume history of Maine, published in 1832, uh, in, came out in Hallowell, but that, was, he, that these people live in Bangor. The, the current court case um, of the Penobscot Nation about sovereignty over the river, the federal district judge is living in Bangor. So Bangor and the timber industry and indigenous peoples have a very contentious, long, long history of opposing interest. And the representation of what happened in Maine history 
and what happens in the main legislature and what happens in the main executive branch and what happens therefore also in the schoolrooms and the, the classrooms of who is reading about main history that's heavily uh, timber biased. Um, and the position of indigenous peoples in Maine who did not have their own spokespeople for the most part, had no lawyers for the most part uh, representing them. And if they did, uh, they didn't always know the uh, intricacies of uh, indigenous uh, people. So in short, we are talking about a revolutionary transformation in Maine, whereby railroad, uh, railroads played a major role as did the, um, the, the sawmills and the uh, lumber schooners and the connectivity between Maine and the rest of the world, in particular the Caribbean and Western Europe. Right, so in, during that time too, I, uh, you know, Bangor was on par with Boston and, and New York. Uh, they were bringing in that, that kind of money. They were one of the wealthiest uh, cities in the world at that time. Uh, so the, we were really right up there uh, monetarily, economically, uh, with with the, the huge uh, population areas, and uh, and so with that status, that, you know, we, the the railroads and the timber uh, brought us that status, and uh, Maine really wanted to kind of hang on to that. Uh, so, Darren, do you want to say something about that time in history, or? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, it, it, just in a broad sense, I, you know, I don't have a whole lot to add uh, to what Harold said. I think that, you know, we talked about the land speculation, which leads to certain forms of extraction you know, and the timber industry that, that comes out of it, right? So it's... Um, land speculation as the founders often do in settler context. And then the um, extraction, which timber is the sort of very, the most important and biggest of the kind of first wave that, you know, subsequent things in terms of, um, you know, defining the landscape for then um, more settlement, right? It has what you have after the, say, the extraction for uh, timber, is you know set more permanent settlements that are possible through waterways and then damming of, of rivers, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, I think there are these sort of stages of 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 um, settler uh, land speculation logics that are really important to um, this moment in history. Um, and this is only possible because of the state's very adamant moves, you know, and, and Harold mentioned, say, the, you know, the Penobscot uh, Fort Townships, but even before that, you know, in the 1820s, some of the first laws really regulating the life way of, of Indians, you know, of Native people. So I think, you know, there's a kind of uh, just the overall logic um, of what the state is doing, you know, the first, some of the first laws in the 1820s were about regulating Indian life and then um, sort of gaining control over the Indian. And then, you know, the land speculation, which sort of starts with the, the kind of framing of founding the state of Maine and its sort of, you know, documentation of, of, of um, through various forms of, of surveying. And then, you know, you've, you have these, you know, important cases, uh, this emphasis on the legislative branch, which really bring in 
um, in very firm ways, in addition to the legislative acts, bring in uh, the Indians under sort of a, a really profound um, secondary, if, if not tertiary form of citizenship and control by the, the state uh, government. Um, so I think, you know, the, the legislative pieces of this are, um, are tied to obviously these sort of um, statements by the, the judiciary that we're going to um, talk about today. So the first, the, the first case that I, that I want to look at is uh, Murch v. Tomer, uh, 1842. And Murch v. Tomer was sort of, uh, you know, harmless looking on its face because it was a, a case on pro a promissory note. And um, who, who wants to talk about that case? Should I say a bit more about that or someone else want to jump in here with Murch v. Tomer? Yeah, I'm I'm happy to Harold if if I may. So yeah, the the case appears, and and there are theories out there, sort of why a, a case <laughs> the that is um, just a simple promissory note contract kind of dispute between an Indian and a non-Indian, why that becomes a Supreme Court case. I think Donna, you probably have the best <laughs> sort of take on that. Um, but uh, you know, really, um, I think I think the the contradictions that that happen through this process are, are very important, and I think Merch B. Tomer, of course, has in it what I've what I've described as you know this move I'd mentioned before, you know, uh, in the state constitution, Indians not taxed, right, as a kind of category of otherness, Indians not being able to vote. Um, in that regard, that you you have by then 1840, uh, 1842, um, the the problem that you have is uh, you know how how dependent are Indians upon you know how how much like children is the state willing to treat them, and you know what's very clear in these nineteenth century cases is that the the judiciary um, working with the legislature really wants it both ways. On the one hand, the Indians are meant to be dependent and not have control over lands, resources as Indians or Indian tribes, or even as outright property owners, because that's all done through the Indian agent system. So that you have that on, on the one hand, so they are deemed like children. But on the other hand, they also don't want um, this sort of uh, Indians to, to benefit in any way from this categorization of being dependent. So you have a, a simple promissory note uh, decision where, you know, clearly if we can't vote um, and in famously in the case, you know, we are referred to as uh, imbeciles, right? Sort of the, the, the famous quote that many of us talk about in, in this case uh, says the imbecility on there, the Indians part and the dictates of humanity and ours have necessarily prescribed to them their sub subjection to our paternal control in disregard of some at least of abstract principles of the rights of man. So seemingly something that is like um, this category of otherness through Indians not tax, which presumes a kind of sovereignty or outside of the political uh, system of the state 
is um, now turned into a very racialized kind of notion of they are because of their nature as Indians are imbeciles um, and therefore uh, we need to have them under our paternal control like children. But of course, it, they also don't want us getting out of things like a promissory note. <laughs> um, and uh, so the, the, the court actually decides that um, um, Tomer um, is, is subject, uh, um, Peel Tomer, um, uh, who is actually a, re a relation of mine, um, he uh, is subject to the promissory note. Um, and so isn't in this particular situation like a child or an imbecile. They, they wouldn't allow a child to sign a promissory note in 1842, but they would allow an Indian. So the haziness of the second class citizenship is continually manipulated by the, the sort of back and forth between the legislative and judiciary branches to kind of hold in this paternalistic way, the imbecile Indian on the one hand, where we don't have rights to vote, for example. Um, but on the other hand, um, we do have, we are liable to promissory notes um, if we are, if we sign them and, and want to sort of get out of them because we're simply Indians and are just dependents. So I think it is, um, taking this case and making it into um, all the way to the Supreme Judicial Court of, of Maine at the time is to stake out a claim of sort of somewhere in the contours of imbecility and also being um, held responsible for actions, which is not like children. The state is trying to kind of formulate you know, having that both ways. Um, and we see this progress over the 19th century of, you know, when we can and cannot act to um, use our own resources held by the Indian agent. Like we have very little rights. It's all the Indian agent there, but then we are beholden in other ways to Indian agent actions and other court cases that happen later on. Um, sometimes uh, because of mistakes by the Indian agent, we are suddenly paying for lands or leases twice, or we're being double taxed. There's a whole series of cases that um, kind of get enacted in that way, which, which on their face are, of course, unjust, unfair, and, and completely ludicrous, um, but are, on the other hand, suit the logic of a kind of forced paternalism, and yet not fully, only when it suits the state. Harold. Uh, I overall agree very much with what Darren says. And I was actually thinking uh, when Darren was talking about the state is trying to have it both ways with respect to the promissory note. And then the Penobscot is, um, is uh, obliged to pay and not out of the Indian fund. It has, is a private kind of uh, transaction. And at the same time, so it's this, this uh, wobbling between two positions that comes out in that particular case. And that's of course comes back in 1980 in the main Indian claim settlement act, right? We see the same kind of uh, trying to have uh, the control and at the same time saying, hey, you know, uh, you have the position as a municipality. So it's a similar kind of um, uh, escape, if you will, by the state of Maine to deal with, which is the subject of your series, um, the issue of sovereignty of the tribal nations, right? So. So, and that quasi-sovereign, that was a term that we used early on um, a number of uh, sessions ago, 
the quasi-sovereign status of tribal nations sums it up that it is neither fully sovereign nor fully not sovereign, right? So it hangs there in between. And what you see with these lawsuits is that gray zone that then gets decided upon in a court case, some are better, some are worse, uh, whereby then you know, something moves from a lower court to a higher court until it hits, in this particular case, the, the state Supreme Court, when you get a ruling by judges who kind of make it up the best they can, but sometimes also with the biases that they already possess or the lack of knowledge that they possess. Um, Sometimes, you know, and this is the, I think the function of these black robes of these, uh, of these judges, uh, there's a certain kind of dressing up uh, to make sure that we don't think that these are people just in blue jeans, uh, spicing wood, you know, and reading the newspaper and coughing, but actually they are somehow supreme human beings in a supreme court having that great, great wisdom and then make rulings as if they are God um, beyond approach, beyond reproach. And that's not the case. These people are making making up rulings that then people have to abide by whether they agree with it or not, or whether the judges are right or wrong. And we see that now in the Supreme Court, when we see the kind of aura of the Supreme Court is at this moment being um, shattered, right? I'm speaking here about Washington. The aura of, um, of um, wisdom in governors uh, or presidents, that notion also too has been shattered. Um, that is both good and bad. Uh, but we have to review these cases like Merch versus Tomer and start asking yourself, what was the motive, right, for A, bringing that case? That's an important piece. And was that accidental or what was that about? And then you look at that particular case and it seems so innocuous in a way that you start saying, was that brought to the courtroom on purpose? And then I think about uh, Peel Tomer who is an exceptional character in the Penobscot leadership at that time, because he has a tract of four acres of land and a house off the reservation in Pesadumkag, just opposite, uh, opposite Oloman Island, where he has also had the timber interest at that moment. He's been cutting timber. And so it's a strange case that uh, Merch, this medical doctor in Pesadumkag, a lawyer in Pesadumkag, Peel Tomer in Pasadumkak as a captain, you know, one of the leaders on the tribal council uh, and a tribal representative in Augusta. Why on earth was that case brought um, for that promissory note? I mean, it's a, that was not a huge amount of money. He didn't, his life was not at stake that he would have to go, uh, he might be hanged for, for a crime that he did or did not do, who had the jurisdiction, just simply a promissory note. So I cannot help but wonder about some missing pieces that we may never know about why that case was pushed forward, who had a vested interest in bringing that case, what they were trying to hash out. But sometimes when you bring a case, it's not necessarily has the outcome that you expected. So that's the danger, of course, about all these lawsuits, that simple people bring up a lawsuit and then get a ruling that say, damn it, where did that come from, right? They, 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 they may suddenly be shot, I never expected uh, that to happen. So, and Donna, you as a um, as a tribal representative, you've seen plenty of legal action in your in your lifetime. Things are saying that should never have been brought to the court case because you have actually worsened your case rather than improved. But I don't know the answer to this. Yeah, I I, I thought it was very strange that 
Peel Toma would be brought to court over a promissory note, particularly during that time when um, the state actually was paying tribal members expenses, particularly tribal representative expenses, uh, you know, with a voucher or for travel or whatever they, all of their expenses. It was just uh, kind of strange that this would end up even in court. And in the, in the write-up in this court, uh, the opinion and whatever, the background, you don't hear anything. You don't know who Murich is. You have to do some historical research to find out who Murich is. Peel Toma, all you know is that he's a Penobscot Indian. That's all you know. So when I, looked at, when I first looked at this case, I thought there's something wrong here. Um, and uh, you know what's what's the ulterior motive? And uh, Darren, did, did you come to a conclusion on an ulterior motive for this case? Uh, I mean, uh, my <laughs> much of what I've uh, uh, concluded has come from you. I think in your research. Uh, I mean, I think you you've uh, chased down some of the multiple interests that the. The judge. I mean, I, I'd prefer you tell the story, but you know, I, I think, I think it's stake a claim. You know, I think in general, it is very clearly saying we can, we can make it so they can't own property outright, which is which was in state law at the time. But we also want to hold them accountable. I mean, the the wording in the case is so crazy because one paragraph they're like they're dependent and they can't own property and they're as individuals or collectively. And then on the other hand, you know, in their, in, uh, on the other hand, their rights to make personal contracts should not be impaired. You know, like it just, it goes, it, it's, it's nonsensical, you know, I think, um, but I think, you know, that nonsensical has a logic to it. And I think the interests of both judges, courts, you know, they uh, keeping in mind that this is just in and around the, <laughs> the, the seizure of the four um, townships. Like this is like, you know, within years of that. Um, it, it, and it strikes me. And I think what you've uncovered is some of those, those interests of the court and the judge. I, don't, I mean, share, please share the story, <laughs> Donna. I think you, you know more of it than I do. Well, um, what I will say <laughs> is that I, when you look at the uh, opinion, the rendering of the opinion, whatever, it, it basically, uh, it's, it, 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 it focuses on the individual rather than the tribe in a way that it separates individuals, separates tribal members into individuals, separate ownership. You can, you know, you can own land. Well, you know what? If you can separate the ownership of land and make that person uh, able to have contracts, then individuals can sell their lands. Uh, and also, it also diminishes the sovereignty of the tribes. So in my opinion, and I'm not an attorney, but in, 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 in my opinion, I, I think that that case went a long way into uh, 
diminishing tribal sovereignty and uh, giving more power or I don't know what you would call it, uh, to the individual to make contracts and to just separate that individual from the tribal community and the tribe. That's the way that I, that I see it. Uh, Harold? Yeah, um, I actually looked up um, uh, the, um, the, the lawyers. So both Merch and Tomer uh, have two lawyers um, at their uh, disposal. And it happens to be that Tomer has two very high standing attorneys on his side. One is uh, uh, George Sewell uh, from Old Town, uh, who is in, in partnership for a while with Samuel Coney, uh, who was also known as, quote, a good lawyer. Uh, from Bangor. So he has good representation. Uh, and then on the other side, you have um, John A. Appleton, originally from Sabac, also in partnership with Randall. Um, and so that's for Merch. And a number of these uh, people are very active in politics. Um, for example, um, uh, Merch himself is uh, not just a medical doctor since 1830 in Pesadumkeg, but he was also a delegate uh, for the Whigs. At that time, you had the Whigs and the, and the Democrats uh, in um, in politics, uh, but he went to the the, um, the political convention, was a representative, and so forth and so on. And then, of course, uh, Peel Tomer uh, himself. Um, again, when we talk about politics of Whigs versus Democrats in state politics, then you have the tribal politics of the emergence of the new party versus the old party. And so here you see Peel Tomer, who is old party. Um, uh, as opposed to that movement of the new party. So I'm not sure exactly what goes on with that fissioning inside the state itself, where you have these sharply opposed um, political parties, but also within the Penobscot uh, nation, you get that split, not just what we talked about earlier between upriver and downriver, but then also um, the people who are in favor of a more traditional form of political government under the life chiefs, as opposed to the um, state preferred and Indian agent preferred uh, biannual elections of, um, of chiefs and uh, representatives. So in other words, um, the life chiefs who have an authority that precedes the formation of the state of Maine, in this case, John Adian and John Neptune elected in 1816, that's four years before the state of Maine becomes an independent state, um, but they are traditionally having their authority confirmed uh, by the other Wabanaki chiefs uh, at the Wabanaki Confederacy and at the Great Council in Kahnawake near Montreal. So that's a political structure that's very old. Uh, the, 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 uh, the Great uh, Fire uh, at Kahnawake exists in 1701 and the Wabanaki Confederacy probably right in the wake of what's sometimes referred to as the King Philip War that is really the first Anglo-Wabanaki war, when you see the emergence of the Wabanaki Confederacy. And that structure comes under uh, pressure to no longer fund the travel of the, um, of the delegates who are dependent on the Indian agent for funding out of the fund. They can't open, they don't have the power of purse. So they have to ask, can you please pay for our travel expenses to go to Montreal? or to uh, Eastport or to um, Digby or wherever the, uh, uh, the Wabanaki Confederacy meetings are, are being held. So we see a collapse of the indigenous political structure of that alliance and confederacy whereby 
wampum belt diplomacy was being used. Um, the other life chiefs and delegates would be there when they was an election and an inauguration of these life chiefs, as happened in 1816, quite well described. Uh, and then you see the state is supervising the election of, um, of the chiefs and they're ver verified then by the Indian agents. So that's that transition. And Peel Tomer, somehow the case of uh, Murch versus uh, Tomer, that case is at the cusp of so many changes. Um, uh, a, we already mentioned um, the um, the robbing of the four townships, a very crazy case involving timber interests. Then you get the Tomer case, but Tomer himself having a tract of four acres of the reservation privately bought for him with his own house already on it. So what exactly is the quid pro quo? I don't know if there was a quid pro quo, but it is odd. Where was it paid? Out of what? Uh, well, and I also... Yeah, yeah, sorry. So, Harold, no, no, I just to pull you back. I mean, he's he was also um a, a Penobscot representative, like like uh the honorable Donald Loring, uh at some point in the late uh, 1830s, along with um John Neptune and, and New Louis. Um so uh, you know, uh he, he is either a <laughs> common criminal, uh, which I doubt. Um you know, in terms of not honoring a note, or this is in on from both the tribal and state point of view, a kind of test case, perhaps. I, I don't, I mean, I, I think it's really hard to say. It, it it strikes me that is so purposeful though, that you have someone who is basically one of the leaders of the tribe, you know, absconding on a promissory, you know, like that doesn't happen exactly vis-a-vis -vis Donna's point that a lot of things were being um, sort of um, bought, you know, taken care of for 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 tribes for the tribal folks um, in terms of the, especially with the recent four township um, sale <laughs> takings, what whatever you want to say. Like there was, you know, there was, um, you know, this this is not an accidental case. This is feels very purposeful. I don't know if he himself or you know, the, the tribal leadership at the time knew that this would be the outcome of it, in fact, right? I mean, maybe this is simply a way of testing um, the, the courts um, around these issues, uh, individual uh, versus tribe. Um, any I, of I, these are possible, yeah. I completely concur with what Darren was just saying. Uh, a, and I think Darren, uh, Donna, I think probably you agree also, this is not an accidental case, it's too small uh, to um, to have reached that case. They wanted to solve something. And I think the problem uh, was that one party has, you know, in this key, these cases, you either win or you lose, right? And so you go forward and you don't know how the Supreme Court judges uh, will vote beforehand. Um, you only happen to know it afterwards, what happened, right? And then can you go in appeal or not? Um, so if I think about the uh, sovereignty case of the river uh, that's now um, presented to the Supreme Court of, uh, of the United States, if you just think about that came out of an issue of trying to figure out who had jurisdiction, the game wardens of the tribe or the game wardens of the state over what happens uh, in the islands of river, right? Far beyond um, uh, Indian Island. And that normally a game warden from Indian Island would have a very hard time to oversee unless you have a speedboat and you can actually go upriver and actually see something, right? So there was a dispute. Um, there was a desire to resolve the dispute by law, and then it goes forward. And here's a case that we don't know yet the outcome of, 
but I think the case of uh, Merch versus Newell, sorry, uh, Merch versus uh, uh, Tomer, and I think the case of the state versus uh, Newell, as we later will talk about, that too is completely as the way I analyze it now, uh, is a setup, if you will, that was meant to try to figure this out uh, and present it in the court of law because of, there was a gray zone that needed resolution. Right, so let's move on to State v. Newell because we're, we're gonna, we spent like almost half hour on this case. So State v. <laughs> we could go on and, yeah, for the totally. whole time on, on uh, Merch v. Tomer. But um, 1892, and I think that Merch v. Tomer was really a case that was sort of planted as a foundation for future uh, decisions. So in, in State v. Newell, uh, that case is, is the, <laughs> what I think is the epitome of, uh, and how you say it nicely, but uh, uh, legalized genocide, really, uh, because of the, the court, this, you know, it starts out as being uh, a case where the, the deer are being killed out of season. So that's that with a, as a deer case. And uh, the uh, defendant, uh, Newell, uh, who later, actually eight months later, becomes uh, chief of the Passamaquoddy tribe, uh, feels that he had every right to hunt on, on his own land um, be, because of treaty agreements. And so they, him and his attorney, they bring forth all of these treaties, right, from every treaty they can remember, I guess, and just bring it forward uh, to this court. And uh, Newell, the uh, uh, Peter, Judge uh, Peters, uh, it was the, uh, the chief justice at the time. And uh, just to lay a little bit of background here, he he was involved with the lumber industry as well, him and his family. He's, his, uh, his second wife was the daughter of Amos Roberts, who was the uh, 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 lumber baron. So in this case, it's the, uh, the, the opinion is written by a guy named Emery, but it's the opinion of the entire court. And it's a really devastating uh, case in that he, he, he basically says there's no, there's no tribes left in Maine. And uh, in the, the Passamaquoddy, there's no mention of a Passamaquoddy tribe in, in the treaties. And uh, there's, there's, they don't even look like they, they're descendant from the original Indians. So in, his, in this opinion, there are no tribes left and there are no sovereign tribes, no treaty obligations anymore in Maine. Uh, so, uh, Darren, you want to talk to that? <laughs> sure, yeah, I mean, this is, yeah, I, I agree. I think, I think seeing these two cases together um, in much the same way that, you know, the structure set up versus merch in merch, right, of this sort of dependency uh, on the one hand, and then sort of, you know, when we 
<laughs> when the state chooses it, the 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 Indian as an Indian will be um, considered, you know, uh, um, somewhat a citizen <laughs> if we find them responsible for something. Um, uh, not for voting, by the way. That that doesn't come for at least a hundred <laughs> plus years later. Um, but that that. Uh, you know, th this has similar Ill illogics, right? Um, on the one hand saying there's, we find no Passamaquoddy tribe in the treaties. And then they're like, oh, well, there is this treaty, there are the, the Passamaquoddy tribe of Indian, you know, like and they keep calling them the Passamaquoddy tribe or Passamaquoddy Indians. Um, you know, it is, it, it has this similar feel to it that if you really wanted to index, like what is the the you know the the logic? It is that they're they don't have to try all that hard to basically, as you mentioned, Donna, um, basically remove any semblance of a treaty uh, responsibility, which um, is in the state constitution, and they 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 and you know, part of that is uh, only about 15 years before this case, the state constitution, you know, the part of the state constitution which talks about treaty ob obligations from the, from the state of Massachusetts, of which one of these treaties talks about Passamaquoddy hunting rights, um, was made illegal to be printed, that section, right? So they are, the erasures are, are, are important here because they bring it up, they say, oh, the defense counsel, um, um, you know, mentions this and, uh, you know, they don't even, uh, they, 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 they talk about it as, um, uh, as limiting that, that section five limits the, the restraint on the power of the legislature to limit the freedom of Passamaquoddy tribe in hunting and fishing. And then they don't answer that at all. Then they make fun of the defense. They say the defense council with much zeal and industry has furnished us with many and interesting papers. Like, like these papers, you know, which is basically what law is, right? A series of past papers is they just dismiss out of hand, not because they are wrong or, or whatever. They just like, it doesn't, doesn't make any more sense. It doesn't, they just say it, it you know, at the end of the day, they're like, these people can't invoke some treaty made centuries ago, although it's, you know, <laughs> less than a century ago, actually, uh, in terms of these Massachusetts treaties, which the constitution of the state mandates the state uh, honor. Um, you know, it is these various forms of erasure and fat, you know, these are just patently wrong facts um, that are in this decision to basically erase all of treaty relationships. So, you know, I think it is, you know, more of the same. And then I agree with you, Donna, it is this closing argument on treaties and, and um, that, you know, the, 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 the issues that started out very early on with the land seizures now with hunting and fishing, basically our ability to maintain our lifeways now, um, which were secured in our treaties. This is the death knell of, of all of that for the state, you know, and I think, um, it, you know, this is then precedent for 
there is no treaty, there's no right, you know, there's like none of this uh, exists in sort of the main state common law uh, until uh, the federal intervention <laughs> in Passamaquoddy v. Morton uh, close to 100 years after this, right? So. Sure. Yes, one of the fascinating things is when you begin to look at um, this particular arrest by the game warden of two Passamaquoddy, one who had just served the term as tribal representative in the main legislature, namely uh, Peter Newell and Joseph Gabriel, who was his uh, hunting partner, uh, that came just weeks after the massacre at Bundevni. Um, it's kind of important to keep that in mind. On the 29th of December, 1890, uh, when you had the ghost dance movement, as it is referred to, and at that time was often referred to as the Messiah craze, but that was a, um, a prophecy, if you will, that um, the white man's world would vanish um, and the buffalo would return if um, the spirits of the dead could be brought back to life. It was a remarkable apocalyptic moment uh, in the cold, cold winter of uh, the, the Northern Plains where near Adbundetni, where then uh, later the, um, the massacre happened because the cavalry got nervous seeing these uh, Native Americans dancing for a metaphysical solution to a military problem and a hunger that was suffered at the time. So just right after the massacre at Mundetni that has often been portrayed falsely as the battle at Mundetni. It was not a battle, it was a massacre. Uh, many uh, women and children, most of them were all, uh, the men were also all unarmed, uh, but were waiting for an end of times and a beginning of a new earth um, where the life of the ancient uh, forefathers would be restored. That at that time, uh, the game warden in Callis uh, makes this arrest of the two Pesimquadi hunters who are indeed, as Darren was just referring to, are hunting in their traditional hunting territories that went way beyond the reservation boundaries. Uh, the hunting territories of the Passamaquoddy, as you know, they go all the way um, west uh, to the, uh, close to the Union River, uh, uh, where basically now uh, Skillings River, Union River, uh, where Mount Desert Island is, uh, and then to, of course, to the other side of Passamaquoddy Bay, to St. Andrews, uh, that's all complicated history here. But fact is that these hunting territories, the family hunting territories were still worked on by indigenous hunters who had a good chunk of their livelihood came from their um, subsistence hunting, but also market hunting. They were selling the deer hides. It was also selling of the venison to, um, to Boston uh, by the steamboat, you know, that went to both Calais and to uh, Eastport. So it was a form of income for people who were professional hunters. And now you see that the monetary value of game as a source of revenue for the state of Maine that is beginning to build up its tourism industry uh, is now in jeopardy. And that is why the game laws are being instituted pretty much from the uh, early 1850s onwards. You get a whole series of successive laws that then begin to declare a closed season, for example. Well. Uh, the winter time uh, is not ending in December. You know, for many traditional hunters, they continue to hunt well into January and February. But the indigenous pres game preservation system that was destroyed by all these white hunters and loggers who came into their woods and were also hunting. So what you get now is a collapse of the game. Both the deer and the moose and the caribou became extinct by 1900 or thereabout, thereabouts. So the game did need to be preserved. But in that preservation of game, 
what you can then get is this ruling against the indigenous peoples who have always hunted the game in their ancestral homeland, and they get caught in that net that we are all equal before the law. And that's basically the imposition of state law. Everybody's equal before the law, except for others are more so than less. But, but here are the Wabanaki hunters are caught, in particular Pleasant Quarry, who depends so much still on hunting, in particular at Indian Township, um, because at Pleasant Point or Sipayik, you at least had the porpoise hunting, which is not a, a, in dispute, if you will, but the deer hunting and the moose hunting is an issue. And so uh, just to wrap this up, the, um, the former tribal representative, um, Peter Newell, who has just been elected tribal governor for the Passamaquoddy, has himself been arrested, I think, by the game warden, is then defended by the lawyer in Callis, who is the mayor of Callis as well. He happens to be a Democrat. The governor at that time is a Republican. So once again, you get state political issues that are played out in, in Indian country and with respect to Indian law. And that case is then lost. But what most people don't realize, I think when you read State versus Newell, that that case is then brought to Boston, to Massachusetts. And so you see then under the successor of Peter Newell, who is, um, um, uh, his last name is Joseph, um, uh, he's then the chief. And he then goes with um, uh, uh, Louis Mitchell, who was the tribal representative for the Passamaquoddy before Peter Newell, and then later after him as well. And Louis Mitchell is the great champion of this whole case who doesn't get the credit that he should have because not Hansen did all that research on the treaties, uh, who was the lawyer for, um, for, um, uh, for Newell, Governor Newell, but it was uh, uh, Louis Mitchell. Louis Mitchell would go to the Massachusetts archives when the new game laws had been passed and he began to research these Indian treaties in Massachusetts and then would come back to Augusta and he made a famous speech in 1887 for the House of Representatives, which was published, I think, in 90 copies of it. And he basically lays it all out and says, these treaties that our tribe has as a sovereign nation, they're being violated. And here's the evidence that he comes to all these treaties. And then, of course, um, he makes that speech. But then the practice of what that those words mean would be actually provoking a court case. And that's exactly what happened when, um, when the two Passamaquoddy were arrested in Indian Township, sorry, in Township Number Six, there's nothing there even today. That's at Grant Lake. If you get arrested there for, for, for hunting, boy, you have to really put a flare out in to make sure that people know where you are. If you would want to hide somewhere, that's at Township Number Six at, uh, at Grant Lake. So um, it's very clear, but moreover, very few arrests were ever made the number of fines that the state of Maine had was extremely small from uh, violations of the game laws. But what was not small, uh, Peanuts, was the incredible amount of income, according to the state governor uh, power, the income that uh, Maine had from uh, game was six million. That translates in, in 19, that was in 1900, that translates as to 200 million now on half the population that per capita, the equivalence of $400 million in today's money. So I mention this because I often find that when we talk about abstract issues of law, I like to reduce things back to economics because that's often where you see a reality is beginning to take substance. And here you see the incredible amount of money of the railroad industry, the hunting camps, 
the the the, the tourism, the uh, the hunting guides. There are hundreds of hunting guides. All this whole economy, in particular Eastern Maine, that's both lumbering and hunting and tourism. That's all wrapped up in a major source of revenue for the state. Yeah. The other thing is, uh, at this time in the 1890s, I think the uh, we we've reached the peak of the lumber industry and things were like going down and they were sort of uh, seeing how they're paying out money to support tribes uh, because of the treaties. And uh, it's better to that for them economically also to just get rid of the, get, get rid of that obligation. You know, if we didn't have the tribes then we wouldn't have to pay out any, uh, any money to support them. So I think that was an, uh, another plank sort of for this, for this decision. So what, what, by the way, if I may uh, quickly say something, the, what's uh, fascinating about um, the case when it is brought to Massachusetts government, that when the tribal governor and, um, and Louis Mitchell are there, that the tribal governor is actually with his, has with him a wampum belt. So he's in the tribal governor's office in Boston trying to get um, uh, clear that Maine is in violation of the uh, 1820 transfer of obligations from Massachusetts to Maine, that Maine is in violation both on moral and legal grounds. And they then begin to have a petition to make uh, sure that that will go to the Supreme Court. And that ends in nothing. I don't know what happened then, but it didn't go to the Supreme Court in the United States. But that was the objective. They were heading towards the Supreme Court but it was an issue between the state of uh, Massachusetts and the state of Maine in order to propel that to that next level. And because the tribes were wards of the state of Maine, they were not in a position to push it to the federal level that could only have happened with the support of the Massachusetts uh, government who were sympathetic, but not sympathetic enough to actually push it forward. Yeah, um, just <clears throat> to drive home a few of the things that Harold uh, mentioned, uh... I strongly urge listeners to um, to read the Louis, Louis Mitchell speech from the legislature in, in 1887, because um, he, he actually makes many of the <laughs> same connections we're making. Quite honestly, many of us kind of live in his legacy because of um, his very diligent um, work uh, in terms of archives, but his, um, you know, very persuasive speech um which you know does not have the effect that i think he hopes it to have of course with this court case um but he you know he lays out a very compelling case as to <laughs> not only where things have been illegally taken um from the passamaquoddy tribe but also tells a strong story supported by letters from Colonel John Allen, that um, there may not be a United States, and there certainly would not be an Eastern Maine in the United States, if not for the Passamaquoddy tribe. Um, so I think, you know, there, there's a lot of that. He's saying, you know, after what we've given for this place through our own um, ancestors' blood and, and legacy, we at the minimum deserve that which was promised us. I mean, that's the overall narrative of that speech. Um, and it's, you know, hard, you know, I think we think of these takings, you know, the 19th century as, 
as a profound form of these takings um, um, from us, you know, the four townships, the, the hunting, fishing rights, the uh, any number of other lands, um, um, you know, um, thinking about, of course, <laughs> some of the disputes around um, in the mid, you know, 1860s, 1870s around uh, some of the land, some of the islands, uh, the Passamaquoddy Islands, um, that um, of which one of them has been returned, thankfully, in in this last year, um, uh, Pine Island. So I think, um, you know, we think of those takings as very long ago, and hopefully we're working to um, return. But I, you know, also what we see, and and I know we're running out of time. What we see in the uh, the river case, the Penobscot River case, is a a new, a more recent taking, um, and a reversal, and a taking that just is, you know, kind of shocking given the the you know previous states, um, previous commitments to uh, recognizing um, tribal waters on the Penobscot by even the state of Maine, you know, twenty years ago, for example. So, uh, I'll, I mean, I'll just I'll just wrap it there, Donna. You don't have you don't need to, to come back to me, but I, I look forward to kind of pushing this into the next part, the 20th century, and sort of see where, where, this, where this heads us, because I, it's, um, um, there are still uh, victories and, and, and there are still losses um, yet, yet to be considered as we move through the 20th century. Thank you. Carol? Amen. <laughs> Is that it? You have anything to say? Yes, because I'm looking at the clock here. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so we'll end it here. Uh, and so uh, thank you guys. Appreciate your, uh, your, your take on everything. Um, so thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring. You've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. I want to thank Professor Harold Prince and Darren Ranko for being on the show today. The music for our show is by Ralph Richter. A track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamwalk. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart, WMPG, and John Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows. <laughs> <laughs>